Welcome to Christian Assembly, a family church. Since 1930, we've been serving the communities of Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia with the good news of Jesus Christ. With over 40 years of Bible teaching and ministry experience, Pastor Bill brings faith-filled revelation from God's Word. We believe with you, wherever you are, that God will inspire and change your life through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly, follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. Praise God. Amen. We're talking about eternal judgment this morning. Uh, last two messages, I talked about the fact that hell is for real. You know, we know the story, we, a movie that came out, Heaven is for Real. And we thank God that it is. But hell is for real also. And we talked about that. Some people shy away from that for some reason. I don't know why, because Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Did he not? In the Gospels, he sure did. So we're talking about, as a follow-up, eternal judgment. Uh, let's just first of all read the, our text. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 6, chapter 2. For when, for the time, you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, based on all that, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Now, if you saw someone who, let's say, is 50 years old and they're still sitting in a, a class in the first grade to learn the ABCs, would you think that that would be normal? I don't think it would be normal either. But can you imagine someone being 50 years of age and not learning the ABCs? There's something wrong with that picture. Well, what the writer here is actually saying to us is this. Just as someone would be abnormal who wouldn't understand the ABCs, so is someone who is in Christ who doesn't understand the elementary principles of the doctrine of Christ. These are the ABCs of the doctrine of Christ. And that's why the writer is emphasizing this and saying, look, Time has come that you ought to be a teacher, and the word there is a rabbi. You should be a rabbi by now. You should be a teacher by now, but you're not there yet. It's like someone needs to teach you over again the first principles, the fundamental, fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ. In other words, you're still in elementary learning when it comes to the things of God. And that's why he's trying to let them know that, look, you need to leave that. And when he said leave that, he doesn't mean that you abandon the truth of it. He just means it's time to move from faith to faith, from first grade to second grade to third grade to fourth grade. You don't start at the top. You start at the beginning in elementary school, and then you move your way up to higher learning. And so that's what he's trying to tell them. You need to move your way up to higher learning. You don't abandon those truths. You've got those truths. You embrace those truths, but now you move from place to place. And so what were the six fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ that he just mentioned right there that every Christian should know? Well, the first one, what did he say? It was repentance from dead works. And then secondly, he said faith toward God or upon God. We'll see that in a moment. And third, the doctrine of baptisms. And notice it's plural, not singular. Someone commented on, a, on Facebook one time about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and saying that 
There's only one baptism. Well, that's not what Hebrew says. It's the doctrine of baptisms. And that's plural, isn't it? And we'll just briefly give you that in just a moment. But then he said, from there, then there's the doctrine of laying on of hands. Then there's the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. And the sixth one finally being, what we're going to talk about today, is eternal judgment. So these six fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ should be understood by every believer. We should have that as a part of our belief system. We understand what they mean. And then we move on from there to the place of what? Maturity and you could say perfection. Perfection really means just being mature in Christ. So shouldn't we all want to grow? Not just get saved and become stagnant and sit somewhere where all you're doing is learning about you need to get saved, you need to get saved, you need to get saved, you need to get saved. And I sit, I sat there when a church like that once and I just said, I am saved, I am saved, I am saved, I am saved. But let's go from there. <laughs> I've already been saved. I've learned my ABCs, so, so let's move on from there. So we're going to just quickly go through these six fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ this morning. And then uh, mainly focus on the last one, which is eternal judgment, because we've just been talking about how the fact that hell is for real. Amen? Okay, so number one in your notes there. Repentance from dead works. What does that mean? Repentance from dead works. When we come to Christ, yes, we say a sinner's prayer. But when we come to Him, we are coming to Him to let Him know, I'm here to deny myself to take up my cross, and to follow you daily in the regeneration of the Son of Man. I've come to make a change. See, repent means to change my point of view. Change the way I think, change the way I believe, and change the way I live. I no longer want to be one who is bound to this world, bound to the flesh, or bound by, let's say, demonic influences and forces that come against my life. I am giving my heart and my life to you, and also I know this that my works can't save me. There's nothing I can do as far as works are concerned. You know, whether it's, if you think about it, he's writing to Hebrews, so what's he talking about? He's talking about the works of the law can't save you. It's time for you to realize that and get beyond that. And any work that you do, those that were trying to please or appease God by cutting themselves, and asceticism and things like that, but what about if I do enough good deeds? Will that get me into the kingdom? No, absolutely not. It won't get you into the kingdom. So it's repentance from dead works. I can't save myself. That is an impossibility. It'll never work that way. And so I recognize that. I realize that I need a savior. I've got to depend on somebody else other than myself for salvation. So I repent from dead works. Now, have you caught any of the Olympics? I caught some of the Olympics. And I saw a segment, and this really just blew me away. A segment where they shifted from the actual events to a place, I, I think it was in Tokyo. Correct me if you saw this and I'm wrong. But they were standing around this massive tree. Massive tree. And they were talking about some of the practices, the religious practices. Okay, And they stood there and they embraced the tree. They laid their hands on the tree to absorb the power. Did anybody else see that? To absorb the power. Now they think that we Pentecostals are crazy. <laughs> if I'm going to absorb any power, it's not coming from a tree. <laughs> How about you? No, ours comes from the creator of the tree. Go ahead, shout. 
give him the praise. That's where it comes from. My help comes from above, the creator of heaven and earth and sea and all that in them is. What about you? Dead works will never get us into the kingdom. Number two is what? Faith toward God is the second fundamental principle of the doctrine of Christ, the ABCs. It's elementary. So what does he mean, faith toward God? It's really faith upon God. My faith rests upon God himself. In actuality, there are those that say, well, hey, I know that I believe in God. Well, Jesus said, or the, we're told in Scripture that the devils also believe and they tremble, right? So believing in God is not enough. Believing that God exists is not enough. We have to believe in God's way. In God's plan of salvation. We've got to believe in the one he sent to carry out his plan of salvation. We've got to believe in Jesus. So my faith believes actually rests upon God the creator who sent his son Jesus to die for me in my place. And therefore my faith rests upon the finished work of Christ upon Calvary's cross in his life, death, burial, resurrection and ascension. When I use the term the cross, I imply the incarnation and everything from the place to his resurrection and his coronation at the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen. And that's what incorporates all of it. So my faith must be upon God who created me and also the finished work of Christ. Not Buddha, not Confucius, not Krishna, and the list goes on. I read actually chapter 5 of Revelation. I've read it many times. To the point to where I know it. I can quote it. And when I see over and over again. When John's crying. Because no one's found worthy to take the book. And loose the seals thereof. And finally what happens is an elder says to him. Weep not. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David hath prevailed to take the book. And his name is Jesus. And he's standing right over there. No other name is there under heaven. Given among men. Whereby we must be saved. But one name. And what is that name? Jesus, so I believe in the finished work of Christ and my faith rests upon what he did, not what I can do. Or anybody else who ever has a claim that they make. You know why? They never supported their claim by a resurrection from the dead, but Jesus did. So if I'm going to believe in anybody, I'm going to believe in him because he has those credentials. What about you? That's who I believe in. Uh, number three is the doctrine of baptisms. Everybody say baptisms. That's plural, right? That means there's more than one baptism, correct? And as I said, this person was just getting kind of a little testy with us and trying to make us understand there's only one baptism. Like as if we don't know the scripture says there's one baptism in Ephesians chapter 4. We know that. But he's referring to, he was referring to the one major baptism. And remember this, what about water baptism? That's another baptism. So you can't say there's just one. There's more than one baptism. And just for a moment, there's three I want to point out here this morning. Three baptisms that we should be familiar with. Remember, these are fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now, the word baptism, we use that word baptize, baptism, and it means to immerse. We know that. But if you go back to the very beginning when the term was first used, it was being used by those that were very wealthy, like kings and that sort of thing. And whenever they wanted to change their attire, for example, some are clothed in purple, fine linen and all that. And they wanted to change the color of it because they got bored with the color of it. Now, of course, we never get bored with things, do we? No, we don't. No. They wanted to change the color. So what did they do? 
They baptized the, 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 whatever the cloth was, and they put it in a vat of dye. And they immersed it in a vat of dye. Let's just say that it went in white, and let's say it comes out purple. So they baptized it. They put it in, they dipped it in, they left it in, pulled it out, and the whole thing was changed. You can say it was a dip and a dye. Dip and dye. That's what they did. So, when he's talking about the doctrine of baptisms, that's exactly what's taking place. Okay? So, let's start with number one. What is the major baptism? The baptism into Christ by the Spirit of God. We all have been baptized into one body by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, verse 13 tells us that. Well, have you been dipped in the blood? Then you've died. You've been dipped in the blood and you went in as a black sinner with your heart blackened by sin. And when you came out of that dye dipped in the blood of Jesus, you came out whiter than snow. Can somebody say amen? Man, I don't know what that does for you. What else can do that to your sin-sick soul? Nothing. So you got immersed by the Spirit into the body of Christ as we were dipped in the blood. Aren't you glad you're saved? But then secondly, let's talk about the second baptism is water baptism next Sunday. If you haven't been baptized in water, I encourage you to do so. Because you're doing this as an act of obedience to follow your Lord who said you should. Okay, so here we have water baptism. Notice the different baptizer. The Spirit baptizes us into Christ. But now we have a baptizer. And next week I'll be the one doing the baptizing. So the minister will baptize you like John the Baptist was the baptizer. Baptizing you in water. So you're immersed. You go under the water. You're dipped. And when you come up, you die to self. You're no longer living for yourself. It's an outward expression of an inward work of grace that I am here to serve the living God that saved me. You're letting the whole world know. Now you can do it simultaneously. You can get saved and baptized at the same time in water. That's okay. But that's the second baptism. You're making a bold public statement to people that I've surrendered my heart and life to Jesus and I am living for him. So when I went in, I died to myself. I'm alive to Christ. When I come up, I am living for the one who saved my soul. He's the lover of my soul and I should love him for saving my soul. Can you say amen? So that's the second baptism. Then we have the third baptism and this is where the person was very, I guess, Unaware of what the Bible really teaches, and that is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the baptizer who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and fire. He told his disciples, you'll be baptized not many days hence. So they got baptized with the Holy Spirit by Jesus. So who's the baptizer? Jesus. What does he baptize us with? The Holy Spirit and fire. So you've got three baptisms, three baptizers. I want to get, once again, these are the fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ that we all should be familiar with. So, have you been dipped in the blood? Then you've been baptized into the body of Christ, right? Have you been dipped in water? Then you were water baptized to let other people know that this outward sign that I'm going to serve the living God, I'm dead to myself, I'm alive to Christ. Have you been baptized with the Holy Ghost in fire? And, and, and you should. If you're not, you should. So, we all should experience all three baptisms. And then the next one is the laying on of hands, the doctrine of laying on of hands. 
Now, it's, it's sad. This is really sad. Uh, when it comes to the laying on of hands that he said there, in Hebrews chapter 6, this is a way that there's a transfer of the miracle working power of God into people's lives. If you recall back in Mark 16, he said, lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Why would we have to lay hands on the sick for them to recover? Why should we lay hands on the sick for them to recover? Or I should say this, why shouldn't we then, shouldn't we do it if Jesus said to do it? He needs to use us. He needs to use our voices. He needs to use our hands, our feet, etc. We're there to lay hands on the sick that they can recover. And it's so sad to walk in so many churches today and you don't even see that being practiced, which is a fundamental principle of the doctrine of Christ. There's a laying on of hands for the impartation of gifts. There's a laying on of hands to send off people into the ministry. All that is all biblical. And you know what? Not practiced in many of our mainline churches today. It's not used at all. Why? Why isn't it? As a matter of fact, oftentimes this happens here. People will walk into a church service like this because they've never been in a church like this before. And they've been maybe in a mainline church where they don't do anything like this, but just have your little rituals and, and all that. I'm not knocking that. I'm not putting it down. I'm making a point. They walk into a church service here and they see us have an altar call, lay hands on people, they fall under the power. And you know what? They're out the door before I even preach my message. Why is that? Because we've not been taught the fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ. And I relate to this all the time just to let everyone know. It's not me or any of our workers that are up here. Anyone can lay hands on the sick for them to recover. We've been told that by Jesus. Let all believers lay hands on the sick that they can recover. You know as well as I do when your child is sick. And, and all you do is just lay your hand on your child in a loving way. A mother in a loving way. It just soothes them. But you see, this takes it to another level. This is the level of the Spirit of God that raised up Jesus from the dead who was dwelling on the inside of us. There'd be a transfer of the miracle-working power of God into the lives of the people that we're ministering to. Okay, so here's my point when it comes to church. If we were all taught that from the very beginning, that you could lay hands on the sick so that they can recover, and every church practiced that because we're told to in Scripture, it wouldn't be so strange. It wouldn't be so odd, would it? You know what it would be? It would be church. It would be normal. Church. Oh, you need heal? The Bible says lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. But also, what about this? James 5, 14, 15. Any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray them. Anoint them with all the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith. So save the sick and the Lord shall raise them up. If they commit a sin, they shall be forgiven them. And so on. Confess your faults one to another that you may be healed. For the effectual fervent heartfelt prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. Right? Isn't that what James 5, 14 and 15 say in the Amplified Bible? Basically. Someone comes in and they see you. What are you what's he doing? Anointing with oil. What? what? Anointing with oil? Yeah, that's what the scripture said to do. If there's any sick among you, then let him call for the elders of the church. You can have healing come through laying on of hands. Anointing with oil, agreement in prayer, and the list goes on and on. Gifts of faith, special healing, so on. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, whatever. But the point is, if it's not being practiced in church, the fundamental principle is going to be lost. It's not going to be alive anymore. And people are going to think, this is odd, this is a strange place. No, 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 we're not the strange ones. No, we're following what the scriptures teach. Lay hands on the sick. 
and they shall recover. And again, for anybody that's here that's new, this was, this was just one blew me away. When a woman that was nine months and ready to deliver pregnant, and she came up to the altar and she said, just lay hands on me because when you do, I will be healed. My baby will be healed in my womb that they said has spina bifida. So just lay hands on me and I will be healed. And so I laid hands on her. And she fell under the power of God. Now imagine, nine months ready to deliver a baby, kaboom, on the ground. I'm thinking, lawsuit 101. I, I mean, I, I, gee, oh my goodness. But you know, when God is in it, when God does something like that, that's not a fake, that's not phony. That girl had the power of God come on her. She had a baby in her womb. She was told to abort. And she was told that that spina bifida, that it's on the outside, however that works or whatever. And uh, we found out, it took some time later, because they moved away uh, to Georgia, I believe it was. We found out that that woman saw Brother Will at a meeting that he held. It was Georgia, if I'm not mistaken, in Georgia. And when he saw, they saw the table with some, I think, CDs that were on it for, from our church here. And they asked him, how are you associated with that church? And he said, well, that's where I go to church. I, I minister out of that church. Oh, well, let me tell you what happened. And I think it was like, two years later, a year and a half, something like that. Two years later. Said, my wife went to the altar, was prayed for. Power of God came on her. We were told not to have the baby. Here's our baby, completely healed, the spina bifida. We went to the doctors right after that, and they took another sonogram and said there's no spina bifida. Gone. Completely gone. Completely gone. Hallelujah. And you know what? We want that to be the rule, not the exception. But why isn't the, it the rule? Why do people think you're crazy? Why? Because they're not being taught the basic fundamental principles of the doctrine of Christ that tell us this is how God wants us to operate. This is what God wants us to do. This is why we gather together. We want God to show up. We want God to be God. Amen? Okay, the next one is resurrection of the dead. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. It's not in your notes. I understand that, but give me a little bit of liberty here. Is that okay? Can I add to the notes? Look at verses 4 and 5. Look what they say. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. And judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, wait a minute. They were beheaded, but then they lived for, with Christ for a thousand years? Well, let's let's get, keep that in your mind just for a moment. The doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Of course, it starts with Jesus. We know that. He was raised up from the dead, right? But then also, there are other resurrections revealed to us in Scripture. There are two with regard, let's say, to believers. Anyone and everyone who is in Christ, when Christ comes in the rapture of the church, this is what we are told in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18, we are told... When he comes in the clouds with the shout of the archangel, the voice of the archangel, the shout of God, the trump of God, all of a sudden the dead in Christ are going to rise. The graves are going to open and they're going to rise. There's going to be a resurrection. 
and their bodies that are in the grave will be reunited with their spirit and soul and meet their spirit and soul in the air and be reunited. We that are alive will be changed and caught up and meet them also in the air. So we'll be in a glorified state. So that is a resurrection of those who are saved in Christ. There'll be a resurrection of our bodies. We won't have to be resurrected if we're alive when he comes. But those who have died will be resurrected. So that's a resurrection. The second resurrection are those that we just read there. These are those that are martyred through the, through the tribulation period, beheaded for their belief. They're not going to take the mark of the beast. What they're going to do is continue serving God. And when they say, well, you can't buy, you can't sell, whatever the mark of the beast might be, that's okay. I'm not denying my Savior. I'm not denying my Redeemer. It doesn't matter what you do to me. You can only kill my body. That's all you can do to me. So you want to behead me, behead me. But I'm not in any way going to recant. I believe in Jesus Christ. And they'll behead you for it. Well, it says they're dead. They're beheaded. I'm assuming they're dead. Would you assume that they were dead if they were beheaded? Yeah. Well, guess what? He just went on to say, and they will reign a thousand years. Because at that seven year, at the end of the seven year period, he comes in the clouds. Remember? He comes to, to touch down on the earth in Jerusalem on the Mount of All. Right? Okay, he's going to raise up the new temple and the government and all that. But anyhow, the point is this. He just said, we just read there, that they reign with him for a thousand years. That's a resurrection. So they're raised from the dead. And now they're going to reign with him and all of us for 1,000 years. Then we have the third resurrection. That's also found in Revelation chapter 20. And this is called the resurrection of the unsaved. And remember, this is a fundamental principle of the doctrine of Christ. So let's look at it. Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat up on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, what do we have here? A great white throne judgment where those that are unsaved who have never accepted Christ are going to be judged out of the book of life and cast into a lake of fire. So, this is a resurrection of the unsaved. Now, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, not in your notes, but look at what it says before I make my comment. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I shall not I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Did you notice that he says I won't blot that name out? When I was first saved, I thought that you got your name in the book of life when you got saved. But that's not true. Your name is in the Lamb's book of life the moment you're conceived. The moment you and I were conceived, our names were written in the Lamb's book of life. Which goes beyond the shadow of a doubt to prove to these people that he wanted them in his kingdom from the moment they were conceived. That verse says... Your name won't be blotted out. 
And you notice that it says that those that were resurrected to stand before the great white throne judgment, they were judged according to their works. Why is that? Because they trusted in their works and not the works of Christ. So when they lived out their days and never made a decision to believe in the works of Christ, at that moment, their name was blotted out of the book of life. And now as they stand before the great white throne judgment, I know we talk about Peter at the gate and all that. A lot of these things are humorous and whatever. But I want to be real this morning. When you stand before the great white throne judgment and all you have behind you are your works. You think the gates will be open for you? Never. Because you and I in no way can ever do enough work to open up the pearly gates for ourselves. But you and I, who have accepted Christ, when he looks at the books, your name's in there. The door's open. But because these did not, the door's shut. And it won't be open. And all they had to do was confess Christ. All they had to do was accept Jesus. That's all they had to do. But they didn't do it. So the door is shut. This is called the doctrine of the resurrection. And this is called judgment. So the last one is eternal judgment. Number six is eternal judgment. That kind of segues us right into this thing called eternal. Everybody say eternal. There are people that think we get a second chance. No, we don't get a second chance. This is called eternal judgment. Okay, now that's the judgment of the non-believer. But as far as we are concerned, believers in Romans chapter eight and verse one, get a hold of this verse of scripture and just memorize it. It'll bless all of us to do so. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Are you glad you're in Christ Jesus now? Even more so. Which walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made us free from the law of sin and death is the next verse. But my point is this. There's no condemnation. We're not going to stand before the, what is called the Bema or the Bema judgment seat of Christ for any condemnation or guilt. We're not going to stand there and he's going to point the finger out and say, I know what you did and I know what you said and all that. Some people think it's an awful place to be. It's a scary place to be. But remember, there's no condemnation when you're in Christ Jesus. And you walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And so when we get there, we're going to be judged. It's going to be an eternal judgment. For, the, for those that are outside of Christ, it'll be an eternal judgment for them. They will never get out of the place where the worm dies not and the fire's never quenched. They will be there throughout eternity. Last week, I shared with you how the rich man who was in hell and all he wanted was the, some cool water to, to, to cool his tongue because he was tormented in the flames. And he's been that way for 2,000 years and it hasn't ever changed. He is still in that kind of agony and torment. All these years. Can you imagine that? Hard to imagine, isn't it? But it's true. Well, in the book of Romans chapter 14, our judgment will be eternal also. Aren't you glad you're eternally saved? Eternally comforted? 
eternally experiencing the bliss of God's presence and the glory of his presence for all eternity? Absolutely. Look in Romans chapter 14. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we all shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The word judgment is not in there. It's the bema or the bema. Some say bema, some say bema, whatever you prefer. Seat of Christ. So all must stand before the bema of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So when we stand there before, notice it's a standing, and then we bow, but we're standing before the bema of Christ. What are we doing? We're waiting for Jesus, who is the righteous judge, to look at us, evaluate us and our works, and then designate what we experience as far as rewards are concerned. So it's a good place to be. It's a wonderful place to be. When we understand the fact that if we don't judge other people and we judge ourselves, then we're really not going to have a harsh judgment because he said, as you've judged others, so will I judge you. But whatever it is that we've done for him upon this earth, we're going to be rewarded for. And that's why we stand before the judgment or the bema seat of Christ, so that we can receive our rewards. Just like, for example, in the Olympic Games going on right now, we see them up on race platforms and the one in the middle gets the gold and then you've got the silver and you've got the bronze and they're up on a race platform. Here, we've got the judge on a race platform and it's really not a judgment seat per se. It's a place where he evaluates what was done and then designates whatever it is our reward is going to be. So each and every one of us will have to stand the test of fire and when the fire comes, it's going to be an intense situation and what's left remaining is our rewards. And so he's going to come and put a wreath on your head, a crown on your head, and whatever that uh, crown might be. And there are many to, to strive for. But look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We see the same thing echoed by the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. Here's what he says. For he must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, or the bema of Christ. That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. So once again, we find ourselves standing before Christ himself, who is our judge. And what he's looking for is maybe heart motives and desires that we have. And that will determine what? After he evaluates us, what it is that we're going to receive as a reward throughout eternity. And as he said, those that lead many to Christ will shine even brighter as the stars. Look at the next verse in First uh, Corinthians in chapter 3 in verse 10 through 15. He's saying the same thing in a different letter to the same church. According to the grace of God which is given to me and as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another built thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than this that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation silver, gold, silver, precious stones... Wood, hair, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall reveal, or try, every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built upon, thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But notice this, he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. You know why he said that last statement? Let's just say that you've accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord and you're living for Him, you're serving Him with your life. And maybe the things you did on earth, you did with the wrong motive, heart, attitude, and desire. 
to gain personal gain and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And let's just say everything burnt up before that Bema seat of Christ. Let's say it all burned up. You're still saved. You know why you're saved? Because you're not saved by works. You're not saved by your works. What are you saved by? The blood. The blood. So if all of our works burn up, we're still saved by the blood. I'd rather still be saved by the blood. Aren't you glad? See, these others, they were, they were looking for their own works to get them into the pearly gates. Well, their works won't do it. Our works won't do it. Our works will get us rewards, but won't get us into the kingdom. Thank God the blood of Jesus will. Hallelujah. Take a moment and thank him for the blood that he shed for your redemption. See, the fire means intense evaluation and then designation. The rewards that we get, all that he, we did for him, he rewards us for. And we've got certain crowns to, to strive for. Let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and just quickly just get through these crowns. Because this, these are eternal. Eternal judgment. Our judgment will be a good one, not a bad one. Number one. The incorruptible crown. Know you not that they which run, run in a race, run all, but one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain. Now, every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. But we are what? An incorruptible crown. I therefore so run not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beats the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection... Lest by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. Okay, so what is he talking about here? Discipline. He's talking about disciplining ourselves as we live our lives here upon the earth. And Paul says, I got to discipline myself just like an Olympian has to discipline himself or herself. And I'll tell you what, we can see this right now. I mean, we've got a perfect analogy, don't we? With Simone Biles, don't we? Top athlete in all the world. They've got events named after her. They've got things that they, that they would do after her. She's as human as anybody else. And we have to constantly do, be doing what? Keeping ourselves in shape. Physically. Mentally. In every way. Us spiritually as well. So, Paul is saying, look. You might look at me and say, I'm a spiritual giant. But if I don't keep this flesh under, I could be a castaway myself. Exempt from maybe receiving rewards on the, other, on the other side as well. So let's remember this. Every single one of us, if we want this incorruptible crown, it's called this incorruptible crown. It's because of discipline. Disciplining ourselves to walk in love. Disciplining ourselves to forgive others. Disciplining ourselves to study God's word. Disciplining ourselves to pray as we ought to. Self-discipline is what he's saying. That's what he's preaching here for all of us. So, so if we want the incorruptible crown, what are we going to do? Discipline ourselves. Number two, the crown of rejoicing. The crown of rejoicing. Look at the First Thess Thess Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? But he's saying, this is my crown of rejoicing. It's you getting saved. It's you coming into the kingdom. It is you. I'm rejoicing in this crown I'm going to have because of you. 
So it's called also the soul winner's crown. You can say winning souls. Bringing them into the family of God, the soul winner's crown awaits those that will minister Christ as an ambassador to let them know God loves you. Jesus cares about you. Crown of rejoicing. Number three, the crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8. Here the, the Apostle Paul at the end of his life. And what is he saying? My time of departure is at hand. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. A crown of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not me only, but unto all them that also love his appearing. Okay. So we've got this other crown. The crown that's incorruptible, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness. And what that means is we're waiting for him to come. And while we're waiting for him to come, our eyes are up. We are looking under the heavens because we know he's coming soon. And it reminds us to live a holy life, live a righteous life, live a sanctified, set apart life. That we don't live like the people of the world, but we live the way God wants us to live. We choose to um, observe his laws, his statutes, his commandments, and his judgments to live our lives and conduct ourselves in such a way that will bring honor and glory to him. And he says, and if you do that, there's waiting for you a crown of righteousness that no one will take from you throughout eternity. And then you've got the fourth one. And this is for those that teach the word of God, that preach the word of God. Not just pastors, but in the context he's, re he's referring to pastors. But look at First Peter Chapter 5, look what he says. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he's talking to pastors, he's talking to those that are leaders in the church, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. Do you recall when he, he said, back in Ezekiel, it says that God's looking for pastors after his own heart that will preach and teach the word of God that would feed the people of God. If you recall, Peter was told by Jesus to do what? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. That's what I want you to do. What is the number one priority of every pastor in this world is to preach and teach the word of God to the people of God and feed them the word of God. Why? We don't want to be sitting in the first grade when we're 50 years old trying to learn the ABCs. And if all we do is to go where we're not taught the word of God, but we give one verse of scripture, like when the first 24 years of my life, I did not even open up my Bible in the church I attended. And I was told when I got saved and took my Bible and said to the minister, I said, how come you never told me I must be born again? And he looked at me and said, you can't believe everything in that book. Thank you, sir. I won't walk back in that church ever again. So you're telling me that I'm to believe your church doctrine above the Bible and Jesus Christ himself? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. Okay, I won't go back there. God wants us to preach and teach the Word of God and lay a foundation in people's lives for them to grow and develop in the things of God. And we, if you're not going to be taught the Word of God, then what are we here for? He gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the uh, perfecting of the saints, for the edifying of the body of Christ until all come together and so on. Look at the last one, the crown of life. These are the five crowns we all should be striving for, every one of us. James chapter 1, verse 12, and in Revelation also uh, chapter 2. Look at what it says. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord had promised to them that love him. In other words, I love you so much, I'm not going to cave in under the pressure and give in to the temptation to do what is wrong. And if I do, I'm going to repent and ask for mercy and ask for grace to empower me so that next time I face it, I will not be victimized by it.
That's how he wants us to live our lives. Look at the next one in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. For none of these things which thou shalt suffer, behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, ye shall have tribulation ten days, but be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. That's being faithful. We're living in a society right now where people are really getting away from going to church. I could be a good Christian and go to church. I know, but he told you to go to church all the more when you see the day appearing. What are we going to do? Obey him or just obey ourselves or obey our culture? No, he wants us to obey him and serve him and overcome the temptation to, to live our way. And so he says, if you'll do that, you'll have the crown of life. Can you say amen? amen. So our conclusion is what? Hell is for real. Eternal judgment is for real. There's a heaven to gain and there's a hell to shun. And it doesn't matter you know, how long we've been sitting in a church. If you're not born again, you're not going to make it. We have to be born again. Not religious, but have a reality of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I know that sounds to some narrow-minded. Broad is the way. Wide is the gate that leads into destruction. Narrow is the gate. That's the way, rather. Right? That leads to life. And few there be that find it. I don't want anybody's blood on my shoes. Let's all stand together before the Lord.